it all started after the the Lehman debacle and the financial crisis, where a lot of retail customers, which we call grandma and crypto, lost a lot of money. And that's why this entire body of prudential regulation exists. Uh, nobody loves it, right? Jack Ma doesn't like it. So if somebody as important as Jack Ma just complained against all of these risk and capital rules that banks have to deal with, is crypto ready to deal with all of those? Welcome to Opinionated with Ben Schiller. Ben is the features editor at Coindesk. He's a seasoned business journalist, and he'll be talking with some of the most fascinating contributors to Coindesk's daily opinions section. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And now here he is, Ben Schiller. Welcome to Opinionated. Today we're joined by Ajit Chapathi, who's a Coindesk columnist and a Breaking Banks Europe podcast co-host, as well as a fintech partner previously at Consensus and at PwC's UK blockchain practice. He'll be talking about a piece he wrote for Coindesk about PayPal's move into crypto. And while that's a good thing for the industry, it might be more complicated in terms of regulation going forward. And we're going to be tackling the role of banks in this future system with Ajit, who's very experienced in this area. Welcome to the show, Ajit. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Have you had any sleep from last night? Uh, I did, uh, you know, wake up uh, every 30 minutes to look at the dashboard and see and, you know, kind of hoping that uh, Biden would win. You know, the American elections are like what the royal wedding is for Americans. <laughs> so we really kind of, you know, have a lot of anticipation built in. We really take a lot of active interest. I mean, remember, it's 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 one of our colonies from the past. Uh, okay, I shouldn't say that. But so, yeah, I mean, uh, so we are very, very interested in American elections, probably more interested than Americans themselves. So it was truly, truly, truly entertaining. It's like the Super Bowl here. Do you think uncertainty in the outcome of the election will be good for Bitcoin? Uh, yeah, I do think so. I mean, Bitcoin is a very interesting asset at this time because of a lot of institutional money starting to come in. So short-term effects can differ from, you know, short-term is being a couple of weeks and kind of medium-term being a couple of months. So short-term effects can differ quite significantly from medium-term effects. I think in the short run, you might see all assets decline, but over, let's say, a few-week time frame, I believe, yes, uncertainty is good for Bitcoin and gold. Cool. So we're going to talk about a piece you wrote this week about PayPal and some of the other recent news of institutions coming into the Bitcoin space. And generally, this is seen as a very positive development for the industry, particularly the PayPal announcement, which is going to bring up to 345 million customers worldwide into a potential crypto trading environment. Uh, you also talk about a very important bank in Southeast Asia, DBS, which also announced recently that it's setting up an exchange, although it seems to have backtracked a little bit on that announcement, but that's also a big deal. Another big bank getting into the space. So in the piece, rather than being sort of gung-ho about this, though, you uh, rather pour water on uh, this enthusiasm that's been building around this. First of all, why do you have to be such a, a party pooper? I mean, why do you have to? No, no, no. Parade here. So I'm actually quite thrilled by the PayPal announcement. So I think in the in the uh, at least in the next three to five years, it's fantastic for the entire space. It you know brings 345 million new. Um, I mean, most of them, I'm sure, are new customers. Uh, you know, crypto adopters into the ecosystem. There's going to be a lot of people who start interacting with crypto on the PayPal app, but then quickly go find out on 
on the internet where this thing is and what the technology is and you know what we might be able to do with blockchains and bitcoin so overall it's actually pretty fantastic i think you know there are long term effects as i said which can differ significantly from short term effects and i think my one point of contention was where the large systemically important financial institutions go and that's not just paypal that's also you know the, the bank in singapore dbs which is one of the largest banks in southeast asia the regulators follow and in crypto regulation is a double edged sword so that's what my article is about so you actually put a number on this and you reckon that crypto infrastructure companies will be facing 10 times the amount of regulation they have now as a result of having to deal with the legacy banking regulation nexus can you just talk about why that would be? I mean, why would bringing a company like PayPal into the crypto ecosystem necessitate that much regulation? Crypto right now is how investment banking used to be in the 90s. So if you read Traders Can Send Money, which is a really, really nice book uh, about trading back in the days. And if you worked for, let's say, Goldman until 2009, which I did. Then it was a very innovative industry, right? We created a lot of math. We made a lot of changes to tech very, very quickly. There was a lot of aggressive, high-risk prop trading that was going on. And a lot of bankers after the crisis have come into crypto as well. So, you know, a lot of crypto firms anyways, uh, you know, do with a different asset class what investment banks do on a day-to-day basis, whether it's trading, principal trading, you know, investment banking, asset management. So all of those services are more or less the same. What really differs is the amount of regulation we have to face in the fiat world and the amount of regulation we have to deal with in the crypto world. So, so far, we have had to deal with certain types of regulations. So yes, anti-money laundering, the Banking Secrecy Act, all of the FATF rules are coming into crypto, with, especially with the transposition of Anti-Money Laundering Directive 5 in Europe. But I think what we haven't seen is the entire body of you know, risk management, as in market risk, trade risk, operational risk, and then everything that it takes to sort of manage risks so that customers' money is not lost. So we don't currently do any of that. We deal with securities laws. Occasionally, we deal with money laundering issues, and you know, we do transaction reporting in crypto in most crypto firms. But we don't ever deal with prudential rules, which is what all of the risk management is about. So that's pretty scary. I mean, you make a point in the piece that people can expect to have higher costs and uh, lower margins on on trading. I mean, do you think the uh, opportunity for high returns that we've seen in the last few months will go away because of these new regulations? Uh, Again, right. uh, There is a short term and there is a long term. I'm on Twitter a little bit more than I should be. And there is this DeFi protocol called Harvest Finance which was you know, arbitraged or rather manipulated out of $24 million worth of customers' money. Now, the thing about uh, Harvest Finance is we don't know who built it. There's no sort of fiduciary signing anything. There is an anonymous developer team that launched the protocol. And then if $24 million of customer money are gone, then there is no recourse, as in they don't legally have to do anything about it. And and Harvest Finance were fond of saying that, look, we got to a billion dollars in deposits, or they said TVL, in a few weeks, whereas Monzo took forever. But I think what they haven't realized is that it takes you know somewhere between 50 million to 100 million to launch a bank or even a 
a large payments company like Monzo, which can hold those level of deposits. And a lot of that cost is really compliance and risk management, which DeFi or crypto doesn't have to deal with at all. So what does that mean in practice, right? So if you want to launch launch a Monzo, one of the top three new banks in the UK, you have to raise capital differently. It takes a long time to sort of build the product, get the licensing and registrations from regulators, build the management structures, hire sort of non-developers, you know, bring in auditors, write up all of the paperwork before you can actually take customers' money, right? And if Harvest Finance loses customers' money today, there's no recourse. If Monzo loses customers' money, you will have a, a whole bunch of people from the FCA and you will have, you know, an auditor like PwC and you will have a few people sort of looking at what happened all day, all night for a few weeks. And in the UK, under the senior manager regime, Monzo execs could go to jail if this involved, you know, uh, gross negligence. So the level of regulation that we deal with in the fiat banking world is at a whole different level. And it wasn't always like this. It all started after the the Lehman debacle and the financial crisis where a lot of retail customers, which we call grandma in crypto, lost a lot of money. And that's why this entire body of of prudential regulation exists. And uh, nobody loves it, right? Jack Ma doesn't like it. So if somebody as uh, important as Jack Ma just complained against all of these risk uh, and capital rules that banks have to deal with, is, is crypto ready to deal with all of those? Clearly not right now, right? But then the question is, what's the time frame? And I think uh, I'll keep emphasizing that the short-run effects are great, but the long-run effects could be exactly as you described. As well as banks coming into the industry and offering to be partners with existing exchanges, we have exchanges themselves becoming crypto banks. For instance, Kraken, which is a major player, has set up a banking license in Wyoming. And you see this as part of a trend of crypto exchanges becoming banks and banks getting into crypto. I mean, talk about that sort of conversion. Yeah. So I I think, uh, you know, some of the smarter, forward-looking players like Coinbase and Kraken have taken active steps to comply with some of the banking standards. And also, if you look at Sapo's website, they were acquired by Coinbase, then they are, in fact, actively looking to provide neobank mobile banking-like services. Now, Kraken have uh, started the process with their Wyoming banking license. And, and I think we'll see those types of moves. You know, We saw in the news that Binance tried to acquire a bank in Liechtenstein and so on. But let's look at why all of this activity is going on. Regulators have kind of changed their approach. So uh, back in 2017, 2018, you know, when I spoke to regulators, then they felt very comfortable that the banking system was largely protected from any crypto-related risks. So there was this blood-brain barrier or there was this shield of glass between crypto and fiat systems. And as long as the crypto didn't get into the banking system or on banks' balance sheet and expose banks and the wider mass of consumers to risks associated with crypto volatility, everything was fine. So regulators weren't very actively intervening. And even when they made major pronouncements like China's ban or so on, they didn't really enforce most of those because they felt banking system was protected. The banking system is where regulators draw the line. And that's primarily because of two reasons. One, they have had enough experience of systemic risk after Lehman. A lot of regulators uh, were criticized for what happened back then. And then secondly, it's what they regulate. They regulate the banking system. Now, if you look at where the regulation is going around the world, right? Germany treats crypto custody as essentially a, a banking service. So it allows banks to custody crypto, but then it also treats crypto custody as a banking operation. Now, you will see that sort of trend everywhere. 
where you are essentially, if you're holding customer assets, whether those assets are crypto or fiat, you're governed by the same sort of laws one way or the other with some variation. And you kind of have the same sort of fiduciary responsibility. So if customers lose money, there is some recourse, whether that money is crypto or fiat or you know something else, then sort of the same sort of regulations will apply now. So how do the crypto firms compete? And what's the time frame for this? So rulemaking takes five years from conceptualization to enforcement. So you take two years to really write down the rules, get it through a review process, get all the lawyers to look at it. And then you start hiring the right people. You start enforcing those rules. You start the supervision process. You build the right licensing and registration regimes. So implementing regulations from sort of thinking to actually implementing and enforcing takes a minimum of four to five years. So the next five years is when sort of the crypto industry has to prepare and we're going to have two types of players. And this will happen jurisdiction by jurisdiction and not everywhere at the same time. So crypto firms have to prepare. And there are two ways they can do that. One is to sort of get ahead of this and start looking at the regulatory and, you know, cap- regulatory and capabilities beyond AML compliance and say, look, what do we need to do? How do we sort of hedge our bets, right? If regulation takes that direction, how do we sort of prepare ourselves to compete in, in a very different regulatory environment? And then the second thing is, you know, if we don't want to be in that business, then at what point do we start to look at strategic alternatives, whether it's mergers, acquisitions, or, you know, wind downs? I mean, it does seem to be a big irony here, because on, on the one hand, it's great that these uh, fringe uh, businesses are now kind of being engaged in, in the proper system. It shows an industry really growing up. On the other hand, it is a sort of bastardization of the original dream of Bitcoin, which is to be a system of money outside of the existing banking system. So, I mean, how should we think about that irony? I mean, is this just an inevitable consequence of an industry growing up or is this about selling out to an existing architecture that we didn't really like? A little bit of both, but I have a a much more favorable view of what's really going on. So on one hand, you're right. We started out with the dream of occupying Wall Street. And uh, I mean, that's what, you know, that, that was the direct consequence of crypto anarchist thought. And then I think five years later, we have sort of grown up as an industry. We have got really too big for regulators to ignore, for the financial system to ignore. And then we've also become very, very attractive for banks, right? So banks want to get in because they see, and payments companies like PayPal and Cash App want to get in because they see a lot of customer interest. They see a lot of customer engagement. I think that's coming out of integrating crypto into their apps. Banks are not going to be left out. At least outside of the US, banks have had a difficult few years in terms of profitability. They're looking for new revenue streams and they see all of these crypto firms making abnormal profits. They're not going to be left out. So so some of this is natural. But what's really going on is not so much about money, right? What's going on, on about is about about the internet, right? So what are we missing? And, and I keep talking about this. We're missing two things on the internet. One is magic internet money, which Bitcoin solves. And we're missing digital identity. Now, these are the two things that the Netscape guys wanted to solve way back in 1996-95 and they weren't able to do that because of all of the regulations so we have kind of forced that issue right so as the crypto industry we have forced the issue of sort of saying hey there needs to be internet-based money there is just no way around it and here is something that works so i think that debate is settled there is internet-based money there's just no walking away from it we're talking about programmable money with inside central banks right now which is you know unthinkable so Four years ago, I worked on a project with the Bank of England, and they were sort of far-sighted to start to think about it. 
But most central banks hadn't thought about it at all. And now if you look at central banks doing serious experiments with programmable internet-based money, they've come a long, long, long way. So that's fantastic. We don't know where all of this is going to go. But one thing is for sure, whether we occupy Wall Street or the Wall Street occupies us, financial services as an industry will start to move more and more and more on the internet. They're not going to be so much behind the walls services that are owned by somebody's proprietary uh, one entity or one corporation. I think we're going to see a lot of this open network based finance because that idea has just broken through. Now we're looking at the traditional legacy bank saying, yes, this is a thing. And that's amazing. So this might not be exactly what we envisaged in the Bitcoin white paper, but it's a more favorable version than what we have at the moment because it's based upon an open protocol for yeah, money transfer. I mean, the, the white paper was written at a time, at a point in time in history, and it, you know, and it's just an incredible intellectual achievement, that white paper. But I mean, no innovator knows how things are going to evolve 10 years from when they created something truly valuable. Steve Jobs didn't know that iPads were going to be used by babies and grandmothers. It's fantastic. I think a wonderful innovation like Bitcoin, just finding new niches and sort of becoming global and one of the biggest brands on the internet, it's just phenomenal. I think I think we should celebrate it. You mentioned just then that two big problems with the internet. One is about uh, the magic money and the other one is about identity. Do you see uh, any moves recently to solve the identity issue, that seems to be a bit on the sort of back burner at the moment. It's a very, 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 very difficult problem. And uh, there are lots and lots of initiatives around the world uh, within and outside of blockchain that are going on to solve identity. So, you know, India did its centralized Aadhaar database, which has a lot of benefits. Everyone can get a bank account. I'm not quite sure what China has, but I'm sure they have a way to identify people associated with the transactions on their CBDC. Uh, that that leaves us with the Western world, right? The UK government had several projects in the past to create digital identity and so on. But I think what's re- an ID twenty twenty and a few other you know bodies have tried to solve this problem intellectually. I, I think what's going to happen is you know one of these thousand efforts will see traction and sort of become a market based standard over a period of time. So so yes, but uh, the original dream of you know Mark Andreessen was to really to have identity on the browser, right? You know, there is a famous joke that on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog, and which means you can spam and you can do a lot of stuff, and uh, nobody really knows. And also, you can't really benefit from you know identity-related services like you know lending. If you want to borrow money, then you need to have some sort of identity and so on. So, so one of these solutions that are being experimented with will find some traction in a small space, and then other people will look at it and say, "Wow, we need to do this." And I think the central bank digital currency discussion will start to really force the agenda. If you're going to create retail CBDCs, then how do you really create a wide system of money? that is interoperable cross-border and cross-currencies without having some sort of internet-based identity. It's not clear to me. It's interesting you bring up uh, CBDCs. Uh, you've written a lot about that as well. How do you see you know, the world of private internet money like Bitcoin and, and, and many other projects uh, sitting alongside these central bank projects? I mean, it Yeah, isn't... yeah. So look, I've been on both sides of this. I was involved in WeTrade, which is the first trade finance platform to go live ever on private blockchain and then Congo, and so on. So I've done a lot of private blockchain work in the past. And there was a time for it. So there was a time when I think there was too much fear and sort of, and we fear whatever we don't understand. So banks were really afraid of Bitcoin and they thought it was truly disruptive. So their natural instinct and every single bank that I know 
the natural instinct was to try to have their cake and eat it too, as in try to get all of the benefits of blockchain technology without really creating an open system and participating in an open internet-based ecosystem, right? So everybody wants to own all of it. And that's not just banks, but also some of the crypto exchanges. I think that time is now past. And a lot of enterprises are now, and including central banks, like the Hong Kong Central Bank uh, are working with consensus on a public blockchain layer two solution. So I I think that resistance is starting to break through everywhere. And the Central banks are just exponentially more risk averse than, you know, commercial banks. So it'll take them a little bit longer to sort of become comfortable with this whole new, and the technology will also evolve and become more mature, robust, secure. There will be a lot more uh, solutions for for finality and so on. So on one hand, we are seeing these large, uh, highly risk averse enterprises and institutions and government institutions start to experiment, well, more than experiment with public blockchain. And on the other hand, we are seeing the technology mature. So there are problems with Ethereum that are solved by layer two right now and will be significantly mitigated by other protocols and by Ethereum 2.0. So technology and the the willingness, you know, the loss of fear will at some point meet and we'll see public blockchains dominate. I don't think there are going to be private blockchains uh, at some point. There might be some shared databases, but public blockchain is winning. That's for sure. But it seems in a design for most of these CBDC projects, uh, banks are still playing a role there. I mean, it's not a genuine kind of central bank to customer retail project. I mean, even in China, which is a retail uh, CBDC, there's still a role for commercial banks in that kind of money issuance process. Yeah, and, and it's the right way to do it at this time. And here is the reason. Banks and Bank of England wrote their staff working paper way back in 2016. I forget the num- number. But what they said is, you know, if they uh, essentially disintermediated banks, essentially issued a digital currency that is effectively an account where, you know, sort of money held by a retail customer is effectively in an account that's held by the central bank, then what happens in the time of crisis? Because what's going to happen is if I'm holding $5 with, let's say, JP Morgan, and I hold another $5 with a central bank, then the risk on my $5 held with JP Morgan is much higher because it's still a commercial bank. It's a risky institution. It can fail as much as uh, we don't think so. Whereas the central bank is the lender of last resort, right? So it's the least risky form of money you can find. So in a, in a time of financial crisis, retail customers would move all of their money out of banks into their central bank uh, accounts, right? Which means the probability of the failure of commercial banks will be even higher than it would be if banks were a necessary step in the distribution of central bank digital currency. You don't want central banks to sort of bypass banks altogether. Despite all this rhetoric about ending the banking industry, it seems that banks are still alive and well and uh, with us for a number of years to come. We need banking. I mean, you know, we may or may not need banks. And I think if you are, as someone who's very actively involved in DeFi, uh, you know, other people in the fintech ecosystem have also said this. We may not need banks as they exist today, but we will always need banking, right? And the function of banking is to clear credit. Because if, if all we have is Bitcoin, then we don't have any... L- it's just a certain amount of coins and, you know, it's uh, it's a bearer asset. So how do you sort of lend and if you don't if you don't lend and if you don't sort of engage in credit transactions then how do you really allow the economy to grow and really you know maximize the value of their money so credit is important banks provide a clearing function 
for credit, that's their primary function. And they're not going to go away just because we have a new digital internet form of money. We'll always have banking one way or the other, whether we have banks as they exist today or not. Well, thanks so much, Ajit, for coming on the podcast and explaining all of that. You did a great job. Thank you so much, Ben. It's my pleasure. You can read Ajit at coindesk.com and his latest article, which is entitled Bitcoin is good for PayPal, but is PayPal good for Bitcoin? We'll see you next time. Thanks very much for listening.